0: Hey
1: guys, this is Vita, and you're listening to the Switchback Podcast with CW and Jared Hammernick. I just want to do God's will. I
0: love the community. Scripture, as well as grace and identity. Climbing this mountain. This is your podcast. My eyes have seen the What's cracking, y'all? We back, and we glad to be back with you. It's been two weeks now, and uh, we have some technical difficulties, y'all. Our brother's computer crashed. I was I was doing a design and I was sitting up there. I was so excited. I'm like, "Oh, we about to kill it! The design about to be right!" And my computer just shut off, and it wouldn't turn back on. I was hurting.
2: The struggle is real,
0: man. It's it's too real out here. But we back and we glad to be with y'all. So listen, if this ever happens again, we gonna start a GoFundMe so we could pay for the funeral (laughs) of my computer. And we can buy new (laughs) So when we start this GoFundMe Make sure you throw that bread to it Or the switchback will be dead forever
2: That's probably not true Forever (laughs)
0: No, we're glad to be back with y'all Once again, I'm C.W. Allen with my co-host Jared Hammernick And we have a special guest with us She is an amazing woman who's doing some amazing things that we'll talk about today Originally hailing from uh, the great city of Grand Rapids The other Bible Belt outside of the Texas ones But she's from Grand Rapids, went to school over there Has a great history and a great story So ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Ms. Vita Wilson
1: Hey there, CW. It's
0: good to have you on here. We've been waiting for a minute to get this podcast jumping, but uh, we finally here, and it's the moment of truth. So Vita, we I met you at Sunshine Gospel along with Jared, but I, I wanted to tell the people a little bit about your history and who you are, and and we got you on the Justice Podcast here, the, the Switchback, because you have a unique story that intertwines with justice. So tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up and, and who you are.
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, yes, it is a, a Bible Belt city. They say there's a church on every block. Um, but yeah, I I grew up... I'm biracial, so I grew up with um, a father who is white and a mom who is black, um, which, you know, when you're little, you don't even know the difference. They're just your parents. But uh, as I grew up, um, I just came to uh, a place of trying to understand my identity and, and who I was and what it meant to be biracial. Um, and so that's presented a lot of just challenges. It has, you know, its blessings. and um, But as it relates to, uh, you know, issues of, of justice and, and dignity, it's been a journey to, to think about from that perspective, I guess.
0: Okay. Can you remember at a young age some times where maybe a situation kind of triggered you thinking about justice or issues surrounding that?
1: I mean, I think the the first time that um, I guess I was kind of confronted with my race or my identity was... um, I think it was in 5th grade. Mm-hmm. So I had moved from a public school to a charter school from kind of the inner city to more of a suburb area. Yeah. Um I I called a friend from my public school and was like, "Hey, what's up?" and you know, we were just talking about school and whatnot. And she she asked me, "Why are you talking white?"
2: <laughs> and that was, you
1: know, <laughs> I think there's a lot of, you know, people who've who've heard that before um, people of color who've gotten that question and it was the first time that I was like what does that even mean yeah to talk white um so yeah that was that was one of the first times I started to think about you know yeah
0: and that that's an interesting one, too, because I remember as a kid, a, you know, darker skinned kid, I had a cousin. You know, she was dark skinned as well. And uh, she lived out in the suburbs and she talked a little bit more proper. And we used to call her white girl, like teasing her or like if a girl was uh, light skinned or a guy was light skinned, we'd call him white guy or white boy, <laughs> you know, white boy or white girl. And now I look back at him like, that's so dumb. Like, it's just it was so mean and and just not cool. But I, I remember that happening in, in the neighborhood. Like, it's just this thing, this. This stigma that almost like if you proper or you like to study you're you're not black anymore you're white, which is such a a downgrade to even being black when you think about like our history and the great uh thinkers and and things of that sort hmm yeah so you're you're doing a lot with with justice and um thinking deep about that now, what are some of the things you're doing now or you find yourself landing in yeah so
1: Definitely found myself really passionate about um, what justice looks like for Black women in particular. Okay. Um, I've I've learned a lot just as you mentioned since working with uh, Sunshine Gospel Ministries here in Chicago. Um, it's a it's been a new context for me, um, and and it's it's deepened my passion for trying to. Um, advocate for black women um, and just thinking deeply about the issues that affect them yeah so
0: okay now I I do want to dive into um, you know your job now and kind of how that what you do there with you know with justice and, and that type of thing if you would speak to me just kind of about how it feels as a as a black woman, because you refer to yourself as a black woman, mm-hmm. being a woman who's black and who's white. Like, how does that how does that feel to you when you you know walk into different circles, like whether you're in a white circle versus a black circle. Like, how are you treated? What are some of the things you hear, or how you feel?
1: Yeah, you know, I was just talking to a friend about this earlier today, and that you know, being biracial um, and having family who's black and who's white. I definitely have grown up having insight, kind of into both of those, like different worlds, I guess you could say. Um, And I have found my identity in both parts. Okay. Um, but the perception I get from the world generally is as a black woman. You know, that's how people see me. Okay. Um, so it's interesting in that, um, in you know a book I read recently. By uh, Trevor Noah, "Born a Crime" was great. Yeah, yeah. He talked about um, kind of being able to blend in everywhere, mm-hmm. but never fit in anywhere. Right, right, um, right. And I totally resonate with that. You know, yeah. kind of you can you can understand the worlds um, because you've been a part of them, but you never really fit mm-hmm. into either one. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. It's just different. Yep. I don't, I don't view it as something that I'm not like resentful of it. It's just different. Yeah. So it's interesting.
0: Well, and, and I asked because like my wife is black and Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And so she was telling me like, she, she, you know she'll have situations where she's in certain circles and they might snatch her black card away because <laughs> oh, yeah. she's not black enough or don't know the movies or whatever because she grew up in a in a white suburban community but mm-hmm. she you know and um she doesn't speak spanish so then she's not puerto rican enough mm-hmm. so it's just like where do i fit and learning the groove of that and and i think even for her just realizing her identity as a black woman has been like something she's seen in probably the last six or seven years where it's really been real to her because most people see her and they're like oh it's you know it's a black girl <laughs> you know yeah so it's just a different um situation that you all you know have and I, I think just even men too but
1: well and I did I mean I grew up in a predominantly white community yeah. so but it's weird because you grow up in that community but people view you as a black girl so it's like what is right it mean to be right a black girl in a You know, predominantly white community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just interesting. So, yeah, I've often found myself more assimilating to things that we would say. Sure. White.
0: And it's funny because you you think about like in the past, um, if you were like what did they say one eighth or Mm -hmm. you know like one eighth. Yeah, like if you were just a little bit black, you were just considered black. Mm -hmm. Like there was no no in between. There was no like like you were unfortunately like they saw it as like smitten with blackness you know and you were considered black by the courts Mm -hmm. and so now it's kind of like this flip you know reverse thing so it's just really interesting
2: yeah it is interesting you know and and when you sort of think about it from a historical perspective it wasn't even just one eighth like you know there was what they called the one drop rule Mm -hmm. where if you had one drop of african blood in you is you know you were disqualified from the perks of whiteness, uh, historically speaking. And, and obviously, that's not exactly the case any longer. But yeah, you know, it's not just sort of the 18th perspective, but, but uh, you know, if you were seen as fully black, and, and then you had the sort of all of the disadvantages associated with that over time, uh, which is obviously tragic. Not tragic, unjust. Uh, so, uh, before we, before we jump in and, and Vida, you've put in a lot of work putting together a lesson for the students that we bring in, uh, through our program, but, so we'll come back to that, but you just mentioned you, you may be about to go see the Black Panther for the fifth time <laughs> since it came out, helping, <laughs> helping Ryan Coogler and them break one billion at the global box office single-handedly.
0: You're living it, it? Yo, she, she's like shacking in Wakanda right now. <laughs>
2: so i just wanted to ask like why do you love it so much that you would go maybe even for the fifth time in just a couple weeks like what is it about the black panther that uh is is so powerful that you would go five times in a couple weeks
1: i mean because there's there's so much happening in that movie um there's so many different angles that you could look at um or be paying attention to um so I love it. I think each time I've gone, I've seen something new um, as it relates to how women are represented in the movie, the discussion of, you know, what it what it looks like to be frustrated with your identity as an African-American. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of the narrative with, you know, issues just with race in general in this, you know... In our country, and then you talk about immigration. I mean, it's just like there's so many things happening. I love it, and I just really wish that I could have a spear and be a part of the Dormelage, and As you that's all I want, really. As
0: you
2: should. So that's great. I mean, so that actually kind of I feel like a segue is actually pretty well into the that you put together on that you've entitled "The Power of Perspective." Mm-hmm. Now we're gonna jump into what that means, we'll chop that up, but what do you feel like is is the perspective of the Black Panther as it relates to black women, and how does that contribute to, to maybe a social understanding of, of who black women are or what they could be?
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, Black Panther's interpretation of women was one where they were given freedom, um, they were given respect, that they didn't have to earn um. by way of like proving themselves it was just kind of inherent in who they were yeah um, they were strong but they weren't angry um, and when they were angry it was for valid reasons sometimes we're told they're just angry just because you know but um, yeah and they were beautiful and they were healthy? Yeah, yeah. Um I just the the respect between men and women that was displayed in the movie I thought was beautiful.
2: Nice. It's excellent. Well so I mean let's jump in then. You um have have spent a lot of time thinking about the power of perspective. And so I just love to, to hear your thoughts on that. And I know that it's sort of a multifaceted conversation, so why don't you just lead us into that? Um where should we start and, and where should we go?
1: So I think to start, it's important to reflect on how our perspectives are developed in the first place. Um, You know, obviously it's going to vary depending on how old you are and where you've lived. Um, But I think, um, you know, there are kind of two main ways that our perspectives are developed overall, um, which is through... You know, the relationships in our lives and then the stories that we hear, um, if you want to simplify it. So that being your parents, your friends, your teachers, um, aunts, uncles. And then when we're thinking about stories, it's what, what are the stories that you've been told growing up? What are the movies you've watched, the news that you listen to? Um, and I think that cycle of relationships and stories is what develops our perspective or our understanding of the world um and i think oftentimes you know the the relationships that we have shape the stories that we hear and those stories that we hear then go to shape the relationships that we have that we seek out that we choose to value um so So it's cyclical Mm -hmm.
2: right like like so the relationships that we have influence the stories but those stories influence our relationships Mm -hmm. And if we hear particular stories about particular sorts of people, we may move towards or away from those sorts of relationships. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is that right?
1: Yep. yep. Exactly. Um, so, and that's powerful because at the end of the day, our perspective, our understanding of the world, determines our actions. And um, so, I think in order to have actions that are just, um, where we're where we're seeking to. Um, to validate the dignity that people have, um, we have to think about what our perspectives are, where we're coming from. Um, so that's why I call it the power of perspective, because how we understand the world shapes how we act in it. So yeah,
2: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things you just said that struck me as interesting was was to validate the dignity that people have. Um, what do you mean by that, or or why would you use that particular phrase rather than Something like give people dignity.
1: Because mm-hmm. uh, we can't give pe- people dignity. I mean, we're not we're not God. We're not uh, that <laughs> powerful. We think we are. Right, right. <laughs> we okay. think we are. Like, but we're not. So, um, and some people do use that phrase, but I just don't think it's correct. But we can validate it. Um, and I think yeah. it's not only important for us to do that, but it's important for the person on the other end. Because uh, when you grow up hearing a narrative that you don't have dignity yeah. inherent in you, um, that you start to believe that yourself. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to think about how we can uh, speak the truth of the dignity that's already there.
2: Good. That's really good. The truth of the dignity that's already there. Mm-hmm. All right. So, we have stories and relationships and their power. Mm.
1: Yeah, so you know, obviously relationships and stories—they're beautiful things, right? Like it's—it's it's how God has designed us. I think to to flourish, to grow, um, to understand each other, to understand Him—we're um, we're wired for both of those things. Um, but where the problem comes in is, I think sin has kind of made its way into you know every uh, aspect of this world in one form or another um so when we're thinking about you know how relationships and stories interact to help us develop perspectives that are healthy I think um sin has worked its way in that cycle as well um and has caused all of us to have an understanding of of the world and of each other and s- sometimes even of God, that's just not, it's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and specifically to when we're thinking about relationships, I-, I think that looks like growing up in segregated environments. Mm. I think that that does not help us develop to develop a healthy perspective of others. Um, Cause when we grow up in environments that are segregated, so, yeah you know people who look like you think like you do the same the same things as you do um you're not being exposed to any other way of thinking or doing or being um and there's uh, a great author um whose name is robin d'angelo um she wrote a book called what does it mean to be white yeah um and and she talks about this how you know most uh most white people live segregated lives, um, which is already an issue when we're thinking about the development of healthy perspectives. And sure. she says on top of that, you know, a lot of times we're taught that uh, the, um, the absence of people of color um, in certain spaces is a good thing. It's actually what defines certain spaces as good. Mm. So Wow. Um, you know, when you think about what's it, what does it mean to be in a good neighborhood? Right. Mm -hmm. Sure. What does it mean to be in a bad neighborhood? Just what images come to your mind? Sure. Just when you say that, you know,
2: who are the people that live there? Mm -hmm. What do they look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yep. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, if you're, if you're growing up in that kind of environment, that's, you know, how can you have a healthy perspective of others? Um,
0: well, it's, it's interesting because I remember when your dad, uh, Jared's dad, used to share a lesson and, and he was sharing how, you know, they would do polls at churches. And a lot of times when they did the polls in a black church, they saw diversity as, you know, 50-50, like maybe 50 percent of one ethnicity and 50 percent of another one. But then when they did it in a white churches, it typically was like 80-20, like 80 80% percent white, 20 percent of other, you know, whatever that may be. And so Man. it's just really interesting like the difference
2: in even viewing diversity, right? That comes um, just from from some academic studies, and uh, mm. I believe it was called from a book called the "American Apartheid." Um, and what they found actually was that you know there were, like I think eighty twenty was closer to an average, but there were there were a lot of communities that were as as split as ninety four six. Ooh, right, saying that if we have six percent, oh my gosh, non white folks in our community now we're diverse. Um, and then, you know, the point is, like, if you just compare, like, if you're an, if you're, if you're that part of that 6% and your, your idea of diversity is 50-50, you know, you, if you get to 15% non-white, you're like, this is like, still like tokenism, mm-hmm. right? This is still not yeah. even that serious. Um, but the white folks in the room are like, OK, hold on. This yes. is getting a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> what not, are you doing? Like, not getting ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> why are you trying to change our music? Mm-hmm. Um, yo, yo, speaking,
0: of, it's so interesting you said that because uh, I'm currently like booking a tour right now. And i've been like calling places cold calling as well as uh looking at different festivals and stuff and a lot of the festivals i've been looking at are like christian festivals and i will look at their lineups and all the speakers are like white males which there are some great speakers who are white males so i don't have an issue with it with them being on a ticket but like the thing that that's rough or that's that's tough to see is being a, a young black christian man is that so that's the lineup typically for the speakers. And then you look at the artists and it's usually the same thing. Like, you know, David Crowder got his token spot and um, King Country got their they spot pretty much at every festival. And then even like when you get down to like the hip hop, like it might be one or two token rappers and they're usually like the white rappers. So it's just like the diversity is like dang, bro, like, where, like, where do we fit, you know?
2: And if you think about, like, that from the sociological perspective of of what perspective, like, how do you define diversity? I bet the folks at those conferences think, like, we're actually diverse because we have six workshop speakers who aren't
0: white. Well, bruh, like, there there was one conference that happened over the, the uh, winter, and uh, this conference had, you know, all of the stuff about urban ministry and all of that for the last day. Nothing was filled out. Like as far as who was speaking, uh-huh. it was just totally blank, but like marriage and family, you mm-hmm. know, how to build a church, all of that stuff was filled up and it was like all white speakers, mm-hmm. like white guys. And and she was like, they only want to call us the last day for the diversity talks or the ethnicity talks or urban ministry. But it's like, it's even an afterthought because we got a week into this conference start and nothing's filled up.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and that's what happens when... Coming back to your point, Vita, we live segregated, self-segregated lives, where we can live in communities that are predominantly white and have a few folks of color sprinkled in the mix and feel like we live in a, di- in a diverse community. And the reality is that it's not diverse. We live in self-segregated lives. And if you look at, if you pay attention to the data, like our schools are now more segregated than they were in, 19, in the 1970s. Right. Our, our, we have gone backwards in terms of integration, not forwards, over the last several decades. Um, and so I, I think your point is like that warps the way that uh, our relationships look. It, it warps how we perceive our relationships and then, and then through the, maybe the lack of relationship, the way that we perceive others.
1: Certainly, yeah. And, and like I said, I think that definition of, of that lack of people of color being good I think that's an incredibly powerful idea to consider as well. Um, because then I, I think that's where sometimes when you see that, uh, you know, increase of black perspectives or just black people being represented in a certain space, people getting angsty, because are we are we no longer good? Or is that good going to go away if too many people of color, like, show up?
2: Do you think that that gets spoken about with sort of code language rather than saying this isn't good anymore? We start you, like, do you, like, do you, from your perspective, feel like there are other there's other words that you use instead of like this is not good now that we have more black folks here? Mm-hmm. So I think like the one that immediately comes to mind for me is like, oh, are we like now going to have like liberal theology or something with the idea that like you know this is not as good as it used to be? Mm-hmm. Brother, I'm that's sure. you know. I... I want to I mean, hit that make road.
1: America great again. I, what does oh, that mean? I mean, uh, I think that's uh. that's very coded language for we just had a black president <laughs> and we need to get back to where we used to be. So Absolutely. Um so you know that's the that's the relationship piece and I think how sin has worked its way in and um when we're thinking about stories that's where we begin to talk about stereotypes and bias. Um right. and I think they when we just think about stereotypes okay so white people can't dance you know all asian people are smart i mean these are things that are extremely offensive that we've all heard they're not true um but stereotypes are not meant to um uphold a certain people group or to um they weren't often created to Um, to honor a people group, I should say, right? They're usually used to humiliate, embarrass, you know, to make fun of certain people groups based on whatever that trait may be. And I think what's even uh, more powerful or even more subtle um, is when we think about bias, right? Um, There's a really great TED Talk by a woman named Brittany Barron out in California, who um, relates how our bias has developed in this country to um, this whole kind of 10,000-hour rule, um, uh, which is this idea that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his book, um, basically saying that, you know, if you practice anything for 10,000 hours, you become an expert in that thing.
0: Wait, Vida... (laughs) Your library must be amazing, cause you throw out books effortlessly, bro. <laughs> like, like you are killing it right now.
1: <laughs> see, see now, yeah. I um, I like to listen to books and stuff. I wish I liked to read them. Okay, like <laughs> but but anyway, it, so this ten thousand hour rule, this idea that you know, if you practice anything for ten thousand hours, you are an expert in that thing. And so, you know, what Brittany says is, we, you know, we started slavery in 1619, right? Early 1600s. And if we're just calculating up until 1954, which is, you know, when Brown versus the Board of Education um happened, that is I think, you know, 294 units of 10,000 hours, right? Oh so we have what she would say is that we have 294 times um been uh become experts in, um, the oppression of the dehumanization of, um, the construction of racism, um, the, the oppression of African Americans in this country to the point where today, um, that, uh, exercising those muscles has now become a subconscious act that we don't even recognize, right? Um, you know, so I, I think today when we, when we analyze how racism works, it's not always these overt actions or, you know, calling somebody the N word or whatever it may be. It's, um, it's just like an inherent understanding we have about the spaces that people should be in and how they should act. Mm. That's why when it's like talking white, yeah, we all yeah, have yeah. some sort of vague idea about what, what that, that means.
0: means. Right, right. Yeah.
1: And nobody's ever really taught. Us specifically we didn't have a class on talking white but we have an idea and understanding of what it means to talk yeah. white and to talk black to be white to be black um, and so I think that's where where bias comes in um, and and how how that segregation and how that um, those stereotypes and bias um, have influenced our cultural understanding of black women is something i think is really interesting
0: so so what are the some of the things that as a as a reflection of this learned practice right this this muscle memory that we've developed as a country what are some of the things that black women experience that maybe you've experienced personally or that you know happen whether it be uh, through media or like the social structure of our country
1: um i mean i think one of the the biggest things that I would guess almost any black woman could tell you was this need to to prove herself okay. um, as worthy, um, as capable, as intelligent, mm-hmm. um, as gifted, you know, as being made in the image of God. So I, I think that a lot of times black women... Um, yeah, they struggle with that feeling like because they don't see their themselves represented or at least often in a positive way, especially when we're thinking about media. Yeah. Um it it makes you wonder about like who am I? Like am I am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Um you know, and so there I mean there's so many different things I could say personally. Um but I, but i would say that reflection of being worthy is okay.
2: yeah. yeah and i think this uh, this concept of of racism as muscle memory is actually really helpful to to when we're trying to come to a more uh sort of holistic and accurate understanding of the way that racism operates in our country because i feel like oftentimes we think of racism as as this sort of one-to-one relationship where if I harbor uh, negative feelings towards somebody, now I'm a racist. Mm -hmm. Or if I use particular racial slurs, now I'm a racist. But this idea of muscle memory, especially as we think about it sort of in in a historical and institutional context, racism is then much more about the ways that people are treated by systems and much less about the particular acts of individuals as, you know, even as recognizing uh, racial terror as horrific, um, maybe, maybe racial terror is less the embodiment of, of racism and more the enforcement of it.
1: Hmm. That's interesting.
2: So, so it, it sounds like that's the sort of, uh, relationships piece, right? Isn't, mm-hmm. so you have stereotypes and bias and those are the ways that, that our relationships can be influenced and, and therefore our perspective. What about stories? How do our stories become influenced? Um, you know, maybe in this, how how do our, how do the stories we hear or tell become warped? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, that's, that's through the, the stereotypes and the bias. And so, um, when we're thinking about, um, again, our, our cultural perspective of black women in relation to stereotypes and bias, that's when it's important to consider our media. Like what, what stories do we see? Um, Of black women in the movies that we watch, in the history that we read, um, in the news, Uh, and um, there are a couple of kind of archetypes that you know. I think you mentioned before on a previous podcast when we when we think about you know this mammy. You
0: listening to that joint? Yeah, of course, of course,
1: we made it, mama. (laughs) Well, shout out. It's just because you have Black Panther in the title. And yeah. then I was like, oh, I'm going to have to go.
2: Straight out of Wakanda. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. Um, but, but yeah, you mentioned, you know, this this mammy archetype, right? Mm-hmm. That's this, you know, kind of big-bosomed, dark-skinned um, black woman whose kind of sole purpose is to take care of this white family. Um, and she does so happily. Like, that's what she's content with doing. Um. And what's interesting about that archetype is it wasn't created, um, like by a black woman. It wasn't created from, uh, the perspective of a black woman. It, it, it was created, um, in fact, from a white perspective and it was created to, um, to create a fallacy that there was such a thing as a, as a happy slave. Right. Um, and and I think that's important to understand that this, this archetype of a black woman is not even coming from a black woman. You know, it's something that was developed um, from an outsider and to oppress her, not to uphold her or encourage her or validate the truth about who she was. Um, and there are some other archetypes that we see of black women that do the exact same thing, um, which is, you know, like the Jezebel. So the sexy black girl. Also, not developed, you know, uh, from the perspective of a black woman, but it was used to um, to justify oftentimes sexual violence against black women. Um, it, you know, when we're considering just back when, um, you know, in the time of slavery, we had black women who were breeders, right? Literally, women whose job it was to have babies and to make more slaves. Um, and I, I think. Being able to reckon with just you know living with the concept of a, a woman who was a breeder, um, and to also and to not feel bad about it. Well, you just say she's a Jezebel, right? Like that's what black women are for. That's what they like to do. They're just sexual beings, and that's all they care about. Um, so it's powerful because we see these these archetypes and these um, these ideas about what it means to be a black woman today. Right. Like we saw the help, which was pretty much a modern day um, gone with the wind that right. that mammy archetype was right there. Um, the Jezebel is everywhere. I mean, uh, she
0: on our serve.
1: Oh, yeah. Aunt Jemima. <laughs> yep. Yeah. She's she's good on them pancakes Man. and she mm-hmm. makes some good pancakes, too. Um, Yeah. But I mean, those those were not developed from even the perspectives of black women and they were used specifically to oppress them. Um, and the same with the angry black woman, right? That's the, you know, black women are just inherently angry. Like there's no reason or logic behind it. That's just who they are. Um, which is also just a way of dismissing their anger and not, um, trying to understand it.
2: So that's, that's powerful. Um, and if I think we're honest that, that, hurts to consider this history of um, racial terrorism, not just in general but even the idea that we would treat people as breeders, black women as breeders is horrific and we talked about this idea of the 10,000 hour rule being repeated in American history at least 294 times, Uh, but my guess is there may be some who just think that maybe that doesn't, you know, that hasn't really influenced me, this history of um, racial oppression, uh, the stories, the stereotypes, the bias that gets communicated. I don't, maybe I don't see it in my own life. How would, how would you begin to think about, uh, that sort of thing?
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, well, I recently, I'm gonna throw another book at you, CW, uh, recently listened to, um, Nelson Mandela's autobiography called A Long Walk to Freedom and um obviously he is a hero of the anti-apartheid movement right like um he's he's well known for his activism against racism that's what he lived his life you know to fight and in his book um you know he had had gone to prison he'd been there for 10 years already for just you know his political activism he didn't He'd done no crime other than, you know, speaking out against uh, the, the apartheid, you know, the segregation in their, in their country. Um, and so he'd been in prison for 10 years, and they were going to be transferring him to a different location. Um, and so they decided to do that via an airplane. So he, he gets on this airplane, and he says that a strange sensation came over him when he looked up and he realized that the pilot was black and he immediately started to to like freak out that here's this black man flying a plane. He should not be flying this plane. And he goes on to say that he sat down and it hit him that he believed the lie of the apartheid. Wow. Um, that he believed the lie that there are certain things that black people can't do, that they shouldn't do, um, that they're incapable of. And you know, I, I think that if a man that um, has spent his life uh, advocating for um, dignity and value for all people, and trying to dismantle racism and the and the lie that some people are uh, better than others just based on the color of their skin, I, I think if somebody who's like spent hours and hours in prison. Like thinking about these issues and actively fighting against them can come to a place where he steps on a plane and sees somebody um, flying a plane who's brown and gets worried. I, I mean, I think that it's hard to say that we haven't all been influenced um, and struggle with bias in some way as it relates to race. So, you know, that would be kind of my my reflection on somebody who may not see themselves um, being affected.
2: So there's a subconscious rootedness to these things, mm-hmm. um, and so if, if we're not willing to say that we have done more work than Nelson Mandela to root out racism, both publicly but also in our own lives, and then I think it's fair to say that mm-hmm. uh, these things are are still with us uh, in our own hearts and minds, even if we haven't done enough enough excavation to find them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we haven't rooted out all the brokenness in our own lives, we're not aware of it, I think we should be willing to admit that it might be there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what then are the implications of these things? What are the implications of the way that stereotypes and bias affect um, black women in particular and all of us in general?
1: Mm-hmm. So um, one, of, one of the implications is um, in the workplace. So we, we still see a disparity um, in income when it comes to particularly when we're thinking about white women and black and black women um, there continues to be just a wage gap um, and in fact even with increased education that gap continues to the point where um, you know a white woman and a black woman who both had advanced degrees um, will still see a gap of about 20 percent in you know, the income that they're taking home. So, you know, that's that's concerning in and of itself. Um, but I think one of the biggest implications um, that is the most concerning for me and um, personal in a lot of ways is when we think about um, uh, how black women have been treated um in the medical care system and you know just the fact that today so more black women um, are dying than any other uh, you know demographic here in the US of preventable diseases
0: wow like what, what are some of the diseases that are
1: mm-hmm. like- so a lot of those are heart disease uh-huh. issues, complications with diabetes um, issues with uh, you know, pregnancy-related issues, um, you know, and different different forms of cancer. But um, you know, the uh, when we yeah. think about maternal mortality, so th- Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy issues than wow. a white woman. Um, wow. Black women get breast cancer less often than white women, but they die more frequently than white women do
0: so why why is that is it Mm -hmm. just is it like the medicine Mm -hmm. or just the the care to detail Mm -hmm. by doctors Mm -hmm. like what what attributes to that
1: yeah it's deep and to be quite honest like I couldn't explain it comprehensively but it's there's a long history just in our country of how we have cared for and treated african-americans and what when they come to us with medical issues when they when they go to a doctor um they have found that there tends to be kind of less screenings and less treatment um on the front end of things to prevent these diseases from happening in the first place um i think part of it is uh you know when we think about if somebody doesn't have insurance or um just the hospitals that people are going to is a part of it as well um But I just think we we have a history in this country of how we, um, especially when we think about black women, how we have um, valued their bodies. And I think that's trickled down into, you know, a lot of the different systems we see today. Um, And and that's part of it. So, yeah. yeah,
2: Well, even when you pay attention to historic and current examples of the way that there's discriminatory treatment within the medical field you have i mean going going back further you have like back in back to the days of of enslavement you have um you know white doctors using black people and black women to Mm -hmm. advance the field of medicine by Mm -hmm. by experimenting on humans Mm -hmm. um you know you go a little bit a little bit further and you've got uh you know this, this wasn't just something that happened during during enslavement but also in the 1900s we have the syphilis trials right mm. where, where people are oh infected with syphilis not yeah. with consent or knowledge so that they yeah. can be studied yeah. right you have um just all sorts of things along these lines you know just two examples there and then even when you pay attention today it's sort of the some some myths in the medical field that are persistent um just last year a major medical textbook provider had to revoke a portion of, of a medical textbook which said that uh black folks tend not to feel pain Mm -hmm. to the same degree that others do Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it's just it's yeah it's it's rooted Mm -hmm. in in the medical field and so what you're what you're saying is that those things are not just things that used to happen or stereotypes that continue to be persistent but they actually have real world implications on the lives and deaths Mm -hmm. of black women
1: yeah I, i i do i think that's part of it um Another another piece of it, CW. You asked, you know, what are the causes of this? And I think, um, as you know, you have a wife who's a therapist and and knows the mm-hmm. um, the impacts of trauma and how that affects our health. I think that's another huge piece of it too. Yeah. Um. that it um it can travel down through generations. Oh, right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. just uh the the trauma of our ancestors is not just totally dissipated, but we feel it today. Um, and I think, I think the, the trauma, the anxieties, the stress that, co- that goes along with being a black woman, the loneliness that can go along with being a black woman, mm-hmm. um, plays into these health effects that we're seeing today. Um, And I mentioned earlier that it's personal to me because I, you know, my mom was a black woman, um, and she, you know, when I was in fourth grade was not feeling well and had gone to the, her doctor several times. Um, and he kind of kept brushing her off and saying, well, you know, it's because of your diabetes, which she did have diabetes. Um, and but she just really she was exhausted and she just felt like it's it this is not just my diabetes like there's something going on um and finally after months of of trying to get him to help her she decided to go to another doctor um and this is this was a doctor our whole family had been seeing for a long period of time wow so she she goes to see this other doctor runs some tests to find out that she has a rare blood disease called myelodysplastic syndrome, oh my which became yeah. it's a pre uh, a, a form of pre leukemia. So okay. she she later had leukemia, but you know, it for me it's personal in seeing how um, my mother had to fight really hard to be taken She's seriously. To be taken seriously, and and, the doctors, yeah. and that time wasted was time when there could have been a diagnosis and we could have been working on trying to find. You know, you had to get a, a stem cell transplant So you right. have to find a donor, right? And so the sooner you can find a donor, the better. Right, right. Um, yeah. So it's stories like that where women are trying to be taken seriously. They're trying to get help and they're not getting it um, because they may be brushed off for one reason or another. That can lead to, you know, it can lead to disease that maybe was preventable. Um, this happened just recently with Serena Williams, right? She just had... Uh, a baby in September um, and was having some trouble breathing and she knew that she had uh, an issue where she would get blood clots occasionally and she already knew the procedure that she needed done you know to prevent those blood clots so she tells her doctor like I need this CT scan and this fluid and you know I'll be okay and they just brushed her off and were doing some different tests that she didn't ask for and she almost died, and they finally did what what she asked, and did this CT scan on her chest, and found blood clots there, oh and gosh, gave her the fluid that she asked for, um, you know. But that that's Serena Williams, again. yeah, that's Serena Williams. Like, <laughs> oh my god. Um, so I, I think it's it's complex it's complicated, it's complex, mm-hmm. but I think those are some of uh, those are some of the impacts that we see in the medical field, and to me are are the most concerning because. You know, uh, the fact that Black women are dying from preventable diseases um, is just heartbreaking. Like, there's something we can do about
2: that. It's more than that. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's wrong. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks for sharing, Vita. If I can reveal one of uh, sort of our more private conversations—not super private, but uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes conversation—we talked about. One of the more difficult questions for you personally, being as you put this topic together, this lesson for our teams together, just the question of why other folks should care. Obviously, for you, it's very personal. Um, but what have you come to? Why, if you were to answer that question in your own words, um, why why should other folks care? Why is this something you believe that we all ought to care about?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I definitely wrestled with that question of uh, of why we should care or why. Um, you know say a a young college student kind of white kid from you know north dakota who's coming to stay with us should care about black women and um our culture's understanding of them and for me coming from a, a christian perspective i think we have to start with um you know from genesis um start with the understanding that god has created us um in his own image um both men and women um so we have to start with understanding that all humans are valuable all have been given dignity and worth um just inherently by our creator um and if we if we're missing that understanding or we don't really believe it i I think that's just kind of setting us up for for not caring or not seeing the value of um trying to understand this issue so that's where I start. Um, secondly, I, you know, black women are, have just historically been a vulnerable group of people in this, uh, in this community and in this society in general. Um, so a lot of what we speak to uh, during the week of, you know, bridge builders is trying to understand what it looks like to advocate for vulnerable groups of people and understanding their stories. Um, so that's, that's another reason um, uh, we're also in a 85% African-American community, uh, about 57% of which are, uh, women. Um, so if, if you're trying to understand our context here on the South side of Chicago and Woodlawn in particular, um, and you want to know the stories and, uh, the history that shapes the people who live here, it's important to care and, and to understand this history. Um, And lastly, uh, I think um, you should care because black women have been integral, uh, crucial to so many different facets of our society that they don't often get recognized for. Um, I say that last because I don't think we should value people just based on what they can contribute, right? Like that's not what gives people value. Um, But because it's still important. And when we don't, um, when we don't allow people to live fully into who they are, who they can be, we all miss out, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, there are just a handful of examples of, of women that, uh, um, I can think of right now, like, you know, Katherine Johnson, she's the kind of the main character from Hidden Figures who... Um, was a mathematician who helped you know some astronauts safely make it back to the earth without their spaceship exploding Um, and you know obviously women like Oprah or um, Michelle Obama but just black women who've been um, such um, positive influencers in our society that have have impacted all of us whether we realize it or not. So those are, you know, just some of the reasons why I think it's really important to care.
2: Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That was really vulnerable um, and heartbreaking. Thank you for sharing that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So, so Vita, uh, what's next for you? What you you got on the horizon? What are some projects you're working on? Whether they're passion projects or whatever the case may be.
2: Mm
1: Yeah, I mean, we're in the middle of a really busy season here at work. We have um, a whole new batch of students coming in tomorrow. Um, so just trying to stay focused and um, definitely be ready to interact with them and care for them and what do challenge you do? them.
0: Yeah, what, what do you do with the students? Yeah.
1: So we have um, students that come and stay with us on the, the south side of Chicago uh, for a week and. Um, kind of our tagline is to listen, learn, serve, and return. So the students come to, to learn about our context here in uh, the South Side of Chicago, a neighborhood that traditionally they're often told not to come to a dangerous place. Um, uh, so we, we teach them that it's not that, that there's a rich history here. Yeah. Um, we talk a lot about what it looks like to advocate for people who are vulnerable um, and to be people who do justice, right, and um, so uh, we talk about issues of poverty, and issues of race, um, and things like that, and they also get a chance to serve in the community with some different partners uh, in the area who are doing amazing things, yeah. so um, yeah, we're in full swing with that, and that's kind of where my main focus is, um, yeah, I have a TEDx event that um, I'm on the uh, the team for that so I'm a sponsorship coordinator which is really fun um, it's a great team I have learned a lot of the great things from that um, that's about it if you're if you're feeling sore out there or achy you can uh, uh, get my one of my rice packs I your rice, rice. Packs. <laughs> <I make> rice <laughs> packs
0: nice tell me yeah. tell me about those
1: yeah. I mean they're just it's pretty simple it's just a. a a pack that's full of rice that you can stick in the microwave or you can put it in the freezer Mm -hmm. but What, what do they do so they're really great if you're you know if you're sore if you have an ache or a pain um kind of that heat compress will will relieve that i feel like i'm selling Like I'm I'm doing a little (laughs) commercial. So (laughs) sell your packs. No, they're really great though. Or like if you have cramps, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. If you have cramps out there and you don't want to get yourself a heating pad because those like the electricity that flows through them is not necessarily all that healthy for you, you just warm yourself up a heat pack and you're good. Mm. Um, Or if you got a swollen ankle and you need to put something cold on there, you just put a frozen rice pack on. It's
2: great.
0: The one go. I'm going to have to buy Jared an ice pack for his ankles because I'll be giving
2: them boys that it worked. <laughs> you funny
0: yes.
2: no that's good though um, well Vita thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing yeah, for real. the power of perspective um, both from your experience as well as from just a number of books you read and dropping that knowledge so we appreciate having you on here uh, the voice that you have and I uh, hope that you'll be back sometime yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. And and listen, everybody, we
0: do see your messages and thank you for your comments, your thoughts, your calls, all of it is just super encouraging. Because sometimes you do this and you wonder, like, are people listening? Should I be paying to put it on SoundCloud? Like, is anybody <laughs> out the, there in the void? Is anybody out there? Hello. But uh, you all have been listening and supporting and we appreciate that so we definitely want to keep this thing going and and we'll let you know how you can be a part of that as it's time goes on. but right now the way you can be a part of it is to let us know different things you want to hear about different justice issues that you may be pondering about we do have a couple um in the chamber some folks asked us about some things that we're going to talk about so we're excited we're looking forward to it and uh listen the switchback is back
2: we're back And if you feel like this is something that your friends, your family, your loved ones, or maybe the folks that you don't like so much could benefit from, uh, go ahead and share this uh, podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, Like, share, subscribe on iTunes, all that good stuff. It's all helpful. Thank you. Give us those
0: SoundCloud hearts. (laughs) the SoundCloud hearts. (laughs) We'll catch y'all next week. We'll holler.